Our gospel lesson for today, the 19th Sunday after Pentecost, comes from Matthew chapter 21, verses 33 through 46. Jesus says, listen to another parable. There was a landowner who planted a vineyard, put a fence around it, dug a wine press in it, and built a watchtower. Then he leased it to tenants and went to another country. When the harvest time had come, he sent his slaves to the tenants to collect his produce. But the tenants seized his slaves and beat one, killed another, and stoned another. Again, he sent other slaves, more than the first, and they treated them in the same way. Finally, he sent his son to them, saying, they will respect my son. But when the tenants saw the son, they said to themselves, this is the heir. Come, let us kill him and get his inheritance. So they seized him, threw him out of the vineyard, and killed him. Now when the owner of the vineyard comes, what will he do to those tenants? They said to him, he will put those wretches to a miserable death and lease the vineyard to other tenants who will give him the produce at the harvest time. Jesus said to them, have you never read in the scriptures, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone? This was the Lord's doing and is amazing in our eyes. Therefore, I tell you, the kingdom of God will be taken away from you and given to a people that produces the fruit of the kingdom. The one who falls on this stone will be broken to pieces and it will crush anyone on whom it falls. When the chief priests and the Pharisees heard his parables, they realized that he was speaking about them. They wanted to arrest him, but they feared the crowds because they regarded him as a prophet. The gospel of the Lord. You may be seated. I don't know how to respond to that. (laughs) People of God, may the grace and peace of our triune God be yours today and forever. Amen. Until last night, there was a bag of apples that was sitting over on my kitchen counter. I, I don't know where these apples came from. I think someone gave them to my wife over at her church, I think. And... I can only assume that they were sitting there because she was planning on making a pie or an apple crisp or or something. Uh, But then she ate one, and she's like, these taste lousy, and she threw them away. Um, But the takeaway from this, I'm thinking about apples because I'm thinking about baking. And um, I'm kind of bummed that now I'm not going to get an apple pie because, let's face it, apple pie is amazing. My wife is a baker. She's great at it. It's okay, buddy. She's amazing at baking, and I marvel at her ability. I am not in any way, shape, or form a baker. And in the very rare instances when I try to cook something, it is a very long, lengthy process. It usually turns out okay, but that's about it. Normally, I don't think very much about baking. But about a year and a half ago, It was fairly early in the spring. The rhubarb was going great. And for whatever reason, I had this epiphany on a Saturday morning. I'm going to make a rhubarb pie from scratch. And she looked at me like, what are you thinking? Because she knows my inability to do much of this. And I said, I'm going to make a pie. Are you sure? I'm going to make a pie. And so I got my phone out, and I started looking. I was going to make it from scratch. So I started looking up ingredients and directions for making a homemade pie crust. And I found one. I'm like, okay. And I looked, and I'm like, we got all the stuff. 
I'm going to do this. And time passed as I was muddling my way through this. And she was out in the living room. And every once in a while, she'd kind of poke her head out. Do you want? Nope. Have you thought about? Nope. Maybe you should. Nope. She wanted to give me directions because she saw some train wrecks coming. But I was determined. I'm going to do this. Do not tell me what I am doing wrong. Many hours later, many hours later, a rhubarb pie emerged. And it didn't look like much, but it tasted good. And the whole time, she's like, you're doing it wrong. And I said, let me do it my way. Now, I am not the hero of this story. In this particular instance, she was trying to tell me the way that she thought that I should do stuff, and I did it my own way, and I got a pie. But I am guilty of the opposite side of this, too. There was a time fairly early in our marriage where the lawn needed to be mowed, and many of you know I'm a grass guy, and I take the lawn far too seriously. But one afternoon, Emily got the mower out. I was still working, and she mowed the lawn. And I came home and got a little critical because I looked, and her lines were not very straight. And I told her as much. I'm like, I don't like your lines. And she looked at me, and she says, fine, I will never mow again. And she hasn't. <laughs> to her credit, the grass was cut. That's the whole point of mowing, right? Now, sure, if you like straight lines, cool. But the lawn got mowed. And me being critical of it was not doing anyone any favors. And I think that this tendency that we have on both sides of the coin is important, and I think it's universal. How many of us have ever been told you're doing it wrong? Did it? And maybe we were, yeah, because sometimes we just flat out do stuff wrong. But how many times, or how many have been told you're doing it wrong, but it still came out okay? Yeah, okay. How many people have done that to somebody else? Maybe sometimes you're right, maybe sometimes you're wrong. That idea is lying underneath where we're at with our scripture today. Now, if this sounds kind of familiar, like we've had similar themes the last few weeks, we have. We've definitely been in this, in this type of situation where Jesus is having encounters, and he's, he's teaching, he's telling stories, he's making points that really all kind of look in this general direction of you're doing it wrong. Don't tell me I'm doing it wrong. Now, this is a direct continuation of the story that we had last week. Jesus is still in the temple. He's still interacting with the various people that are, that are there. They're there for one of their festivals. This happens during the events that we know as Holy Week, so it's between the triumphal entry and his eventual arrest. Jesus has been butting heads with the religious leaders a lot. They really don't like the way he does things. They don't like the, the teachings that he's doing and the way that, in their minds, he's undermining the system. Now, a lot of times, I think we probably all fall in the trap of looking at the religious elite within the stories about Jesus and thinking, you guys are wrong. You're doing it wrong. And maybe they are, 
but they are trying to follow their tradition. And maybe very rigidly, but they have a system that they are up to, and Jesus is rocking that boat. And that's probably no surprise. We see this in all kinds of stories. But then Jesus tells this parable. And as I was talking about with the kids, the the imagery that he uses in this, everyone who heard it would instantly think, oh, the vineyard, he's talking about Israel. He's talking about the nation of Israel, the the Israeli culture or the Jewish culture, whatever we want to call it. They've long had this imagery that, the people, the culture, the nation, whatever we want to call it, is this vine that God brought out of Egypt and, and planted. And we heard that in the first reading. We heard it in the psalm today. We heard it maybe not so much in the, the second reading, but then we have this parable that Jesus tells. And it's the parable commonly known as the parable of the, the wicked tenants. We hear that the man or the, the master, the owner, whatever we want to call plants a vineyard, and really apparently likes this vineyard because he builds a wall around it and a watchtower, and so he's really going to protect, wants it protected, and then he leases it out, and then he goes off to another country. And then it's time for the harvest. And like anybody who's ever done cash rent, you know how this works. You harvest, and then a portion of it goes to the owner. Well, he sends his slaves off to collect his payment, And now it seems that the tenants think they're in charge. They seem to think that this is ours and we are going to protect it. We are going to be violent in order to protect it. And we hear that they mistreat some of the slaves and they kill one and they stone one, which to me kind of sounds like the same thing, but they do this. And so the master sends more and they do the same thing, even worse than the first time. And then the master sends the son my heir, my, my son, this is my blood. They will respect my son. And they get this idea, let's kill the son. He's the heir, and we'll take the inheritance for ourselves. Apparently, they've never inherited anything. That's really not how that works. So he tells this story. Now, we hear within the narration that the religious leaders know that he's speaking out against them. And if you're at all familiar with the history of Israel as a nation, this imagery begins to kind of coalesce. It begins to make a little bit of sense. So, so the people were this scattered, large culture, and they were very, very tribal amongst their diff- the different the twelve tribes of Israel. If you've ever heard that, and they didn't really have a central leader. But then eventually, as we go way back in the history to the book of Judges, we hear that the judges would be raised up, and they would be a leader. Usually, they were military minded, but then whenever that judge was around, they would lead the people. Then we have the time of the prophets. And the prophets were the people who were tasked with being the messenger of God. Sometimes it was good news, usually not. Every once in a while it would be. Usually it was a word of rebuke that God sent to the people. Now these are, I think, the slaves from within the parable. And they're mistreated and they're killed and they're not listened to. And so God sends more prophets with pretty much the same result. And this goes on for centuries and centuries and centuries. And then if you know where we're at in the story, then God sends the son. And pretty much immediately after where this story falls in the narrative, Jesus is killed. The son is killed. So that's, I think, what is lying underneath this parable. Now, oftentimes ask the question of why. 
Why are the recipients of these messengers, of these servants of God, why are they so resistant to whatever it is that God is up to? Whatever it is that God might be trying to offer correction or offer a new way of thinking or a new way of being, a new way of worshiping, whatever we want to say. Why are they so resistant? Well, why are we so resistant when we see someone mowing with not straight lines? Why are we so resistant when we see someone baking a pie and doing it differently than we do? And these are two stupid examples, but I think they're applicable. Why? And I don't have a good answer to that question. But it happens. There's certain stuff that we take so seriously that any sort of threat to that is just that. It's a threat. And we act out violently. And folks, if I feel really down to you today? Have you heard the news in Israel? I don't know who fired the first shot, and honestly, I don't care. Again, this place, which is the birth of our faith, they're fighting because you're doing it wrong. And it pisses me off. And it should. Why do we do this to each other? Why is our go-to violence over and over and over again? Sometimes I think about the, the nature of the human race, and I say, God, maybe you should have wiped us out. It started over with dogs, because dogs are perfect. That sounds familiar. Yes, we talked about that with the confirmation kids last spring, and it still resonates with me. Interestingly enough, in confirmation right now, we're talking about the Ten Commandments. And we talk about how they are aimed at our relationship with God and our relationship with one another, our relationship with our neighbors. And if I've taught the kids anything yet, and there's a few of you sitting out there, Austin, who are our neighbors? Everyone. Whether we like them or not. And we have Ten Commandments to choose from, but let's go with the obvious one. Number five, you shall not murder no-brainer, right? Can we all agree? Murder's bad. Why do we keep doing it? I don't have an answer to that question, and I don't have good news to offer. I don't. Sorry if I'm letting you down. That's where I'm at today. As I think about this passage, it feels like rebuke. And it doesn't feel like there's a whole lot of good news in it. But maybe, just maybe, just maybe, the only place that we can go is remember what happened right after this. Jesus died, but three days later he rose again to overcome all of this crap that we keep doing to ourselves and to one another. Today does not feel very joyful to me. And if I have ruined your vibe, I'm sorry. The world is broken. But thanks be to God that somehow, somehow, Jesus redeemed it, even if it doesn't feel like it. And as followers of Christ, we are tasked with taking that message out into the world that is desperate for it. That doesn't mean that we've got all the answers. That doesn't mean that we are perfect people. Far from it. That just means that we recognize the truth. And we recognize that the one who is way above any of our pay grade is doing something about it, even when it doesn't feel like it. 
I want to tidy this up in a nice little bow because that's my style, and I don't have one today. So forgive us, Lord. That's all I got. Amen.